If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 30th, 2020 post-Thanksgiving week edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Since last week was all about social distancing around the turkey table and giving thanks for the mixed blessings that was 2020... For this week's show, we've dipped into the apparently bottomless IMRU archive for a 2018 conversation featuring three of our favorite and accomplished folks to help us celebrate Trans Week of Remembrance. This is Jacob Anderson-Minchel. I'm here with Diane Anderson-Minchel, who is the CEO of Retrograde Communications, an editorial services and content development agency, where she serves as the editorial director of The Advocate, Chill, Plus, and Out Traveler magazines. She's also the chief content officer at Tiny Living Chic and the executive producer of My Health, My Way. She's the author of four novels and one memoir, all from Bold Strokes books. And this is Diane, and I'm going to introduce my co-pilot, Jacob Anderson Minchel, who is the deputy editor of The Advocate and Plus Magazines. And his new epic fourth novel, Swimming Upstream, from Transgress Press, explores queer kinship, gender, individualism, Native American lives, intersex children, and the lasting impacts of trauma. Jake and I have been married 27 years. We wrote about our experience transitioning from lesbian couple to husband and wife in the award-winning memoir, Queerly Beloved, A Love Story Across Genders. We are here today to have an exciting conversation with Ashley Marie Preston, a rather famous media personality, producer, writer, speaker, and civil rights activist, who is the host and producer of the podcast Shook with Ashley Marie Preston, which examines news, politics, entertainment, and pop culture through a social justice lens. Ashley Marie has been the first out trans women to become editor-in-chief of a national publication, Wear Your Voice magazine. And since then, she's been featured by a number of media outlets from Teen Vogue, NBC, New York Times to BuzzFeed, HuffPo, Washington Post, and many more, as well as on E, TMZ Live, Adult Swim, and other networks. We've got a lot of things to talk with Ashley about today, so we're going to go ahead and start with that. Your podcast, Shook with Ashley Marie Preston, offers a safe space for people to ask questions they don't know how to ask trans women, and I love that idea. Since you're headed into season two, we thought we'd sort of ask you a bunch of questions, and we'd jump around and ask questions both about issues and your experiences. But first, happy birthday wishes are in order, aren't they? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. 
You just turned 34. I did. So is that one of the reasons why you launched the hashtag, um, sorry. Thrive (laughs) Over 35. Yeah. I think that for many people, a birthday is a time of celebration. But for Black trans women in America, it's all about survival. And unfortunately, there are so many people who don't know that the uh, life expectancy of an African-American trans woman is 35 years of age. And there's so many barriers that make that so from lack of access of employment to lack of housing, the prison industrial complex. And if you think about the three most vulnerable identities in America are demographics, it's women, black people and trans people. And so you wrap them all into one person and you have a statistic of 35 as the life expectancy. Some groups actually peg that life expectancy even earlier. We've seen some groups talk about it at 28 or 31. And the reason why there isn't a firm number there is because we don't have a great deal of data because basically nobody is actually researching the life and especially the health of trans women. Well, Uh, certainly not this administration. I mean, in fact, they're not even acknowledging Pride Month. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. You were mentioning a number of the reasons for for lowered life expectancy, but one of them is just that trans women of color, well, trans people are often the victims of trauma and violence. And then also for trans women, you have trans misogyny and frequently having to be forced into things like street economies and sex work in order to just to survive. So can we talk a little bit about that? Definitely. When I talk about trans issues, I specifically talk about black trans women and brown trans women or indigenous because of the simple fact that if we're being honest, even white trans women somewhat move throughout the world with a little bit of residual male white privilege. Um, So in many cases, when some of these women transition, they've already made a life for themselves and they've already reaped the benefits of being in America as someone who's white, male, cis, hetero passing. And so for me, when I first came out here, I was 19 years old from Kentucky. I was really excited. I got a job. I was able to get a small apartment. And then what happened is once I transitioned, I was harassed at work and bullied. And then I was eventually fired because I was a liability. Well, I wasn't able to pay my rent. I became homeless. And so when you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. And so when I was in my early transition, we didn't have a Janet Mock. We didn't have a Laverne Cox and Ashley Marie Preston. I I, I didn't have that. And so my role models were the women who were hanging out on the corner of Santa Monica and Highland by Donut Time, uh, which is now Trejo Tacos. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, gentrification. So I started trying to navigate a survival that way. And it was sad because my first time having a sexual encounter as an adult was inside of a car Mm -hmm. on a side street in Hollywood for 20 bucks. And that was what my virginity looked like. And so, yeah. And that's a pretty classic story, especially for women of color and trans women. I think that's one of the reasons why the LGBTQ community overall has a responsibility, actually, to think about the rights and the health of sex workers overall, which we very often in our sort of era of respectability politics want to distance ourselves from politically, right? We want to be like, oh, that's not us. That's not us. But statistically, that is our youth, you know, right? And, And for a fair number of women of color, I have a beloved aunt who is a sex worker, so I understand the world well. And we do hear this, especially for young trans people and young trans women, that they find support on the street because that's the only place that's offering support, too. In that case, what would you think would be something that 
allies could do that would change this system up? I think more than anything, when you have an opportunity to economically empower a trans person of color, by all means, please do so. I look around at so many of these campaigns, and some of them are even from these organizations that receive all of this money from trans people of color. They pull us out from the bottom drawer when the rich white people come around, and then they get the funds to come in. And then when it's time to actually allocate those funds, we're the last person on the totem pole to receive it. And so I think any opportunity in which you are helping a trans person of color find employment, get paid for their work, not taking advantage of them, not wanting them to do everything for free, recognizing that they are already at a disproportionate disadvantage than some of the other trans people under the trans umbrella. Definitely do that. I think the other opportunity too is to think about housing options because I know that one of the biggest challenges I had on the streets... I would have loved to go to a homeless shelter, but the women's shelters wouldn't take me because of my assigned sex at birth, and the men's shelters wouldn't take me because either they were affiliated with the church and it was against their values, or, or they wouldn't They were take... worried about your safety? Right. right. Well, no, that's totally oh, separate. Oh, really? No, they would just no come... pull quotes no, about that. They okay. would just come out and say, like, if you're going to be here, you need to dress like this. You need to wear uh-huh. men's clothes. Gotcha. But once they saw that even in men's clothes, I just look like a lesbian, they mm-hmm. were like, okay, we can't have you here, period. You're a liability. Right. So mm-hmm. that that completely cut me out of any possibilities of getting off the street. So I would say economic empowerment looks like making sure that we're housed, making sure that your first choice is always a trans person of color when you're looking for like speaking engagements or opportunities uh, to make money. Also speak up. There is so much transphobia, even under the LGBTQIA umbrella, that doesn't get talked about because we're LGBTQIA, so we're an oppressed group of people. But lateral oppression is real. And just because we're in the LGBTQIA community doesn't mean we're not capable of being racist or sexist. And so what it is, is we need to recognize that pride without intersectionality or inclusion is trash. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing to remember right now. Jake and I have both experienced homelessness. We are first year in San Francisco together. We were homeless for a whole year. But when I was younger, I was homeless for a period and lived at a Covenant house. And uh, Yes, I was there. <laughs> right? So thank God for Covenant house. Back at the time, you couldn't be an out lesbian. It's different now. You definitely can. So they definitely allow LGBTQ youth. Yeah, but trans the, women can be on the women's side, on the girl side. Awesome. Yeah. So they've definitely changed and it's great. But I remember at the time, you know, we were terrified we'd get kicked out because it was my girlfriend and I. But our roommate was... Uh, she was 26, and so she was over the legal age that they would take, but she, she was pretending to be 18, and she was a sex worker, and she was African-American, and she was there because her pimp had broken her whole jaw. So she she would have to drink her meals through a straw, and she was the funniest, funniest person, just the, you know, wicked wit. But I remember thinking, you know, when we were talking with her, like she just had no options at that moment other than pretending that she was underage. And I just remember thinking that there isn't a big pathway, even for, we have a lot of programs for, no, I should say we have some programs for for youth. And there's this huge gap in the middle. There's this huge gap. You sort of age out, but people still need help. And I wonder... If there, you know, we really need some kind of program or some kind of mentorship program that would that would, you know, help people with that transition, because I'm not sure 
any of us know how they make it. I think competency is the first step. And it goes back to realizing that no one can tell our story better than we can. And so when we're at these galas and fundraisers and philanthropic events, it's important to be able to have trans people of color in the room Mm -hmm. so that we can actually speak to those experiences. The best way to be an ally is to just ask. It's going to look different for each person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to go back to the time when you were in sex work and I sort of don't want to like fetishize your trauma but what I found really interesting about the Teen Vogue piece where you talked about this was what you talked about about the shift in your clients after they had had sex with you. Can you talk about that? We live in a society that is I like to describe it as masculinity as being this big production and most men are afraid to go off script cis heteronormative men rather and so the men that are typically trans amorous men who are attracted to trans women there's a lot of shame there Mm -hmm. and there's this very thin line between like and love and lust and absolute disgust and disdain and so it was one of those things where um I'm an empath. And so I was always able to absorb it. In fact, a lot of the shame that I had around being trans had nothing to do with my own feelings. Like I hear people say like, I feel like I was born in the wrong body and there's this dysphoria. And those are all definitely valid experiences. But I don't know that I've ever had a problem with me being trans. I believe that it was society that had a problem Mm -hmm. with me being trans. And because I'm an empath, I absorbed all that and I carried it as my own. Yeah. This is Jacob Anderson Mitchell and I'm here with Diane. Anderson Mitchell, and we're here in conversation with Ashley Marie Preston. I think that's a really underrepresented and understudied group of men, too. It's very difficult for men to say, I'm attracted to transgender women. You have, on the one hand, just the fetishization that the trans women have been subjected to for so long. But the other time, a lot of these men are part of their secret shame about the situation is that because culture tells them that they're gay yeah. for liking trans women. Because when, we aren't valid women. Like right. So it's sort of the first step is actually validifying transgender women to begin with and getting men to be participant in that validity. Yeah, and I'm excited to expand this conversation. I just most so Playboy is going to be featuring me this month. And my mother actually, when I said that, she was like, Mm. what do you mean? Are you going to be naked? Right. And I'm like, no, not quite. But they're actually kind of taking that transition in the way that Teen Vogue did and mm-hmm. being more political and aware and mm-hmm. kind of just like on conversation. Yeah. And so they also asked me to become a contributor. And so one of the first pieces, just to give you a sample nice. um, that I'm going to be writing about is so the show post just came out on FX and I did a piece for Mike saying that it basically restored pride to trans people or LGBTQ people of color. And there's a character, I don't want to spoil it for you. I will just say that there is a relationship with a trans woman mm-hmm. and a cis heteronormative man. And I'm going to be dissecting that relationship right. and kind of talking about the different stages mm-hmm. of acceptance when a cis heteronormative man first realizes that why am I so like attracted to mm-hmm. this person, yeah. you know, and like, what does this mean? And then kind of taking that plunge and then trying to process it. 
I, I think that one of, th of the biggest cures for transphobia is actually cis-hetero men talking to other cis-hetero men who are trans-attracted and Absolutely. validating one another's attractions or experiences. Because what happens is women in general, we've been conditioned to throw each other under the bus and tear one another down because we have to see ourselves through the male gaze. Mm -hmm. So that's just women in general. But then you add trans identity to the mix and it's one of those things where there are women who they're not dumb they know that cis hetero men are attracted to trans women in some cases there are more bi men you know we talk about bi erasure mm -hmm. there are men who are also sleeping with other men while they're married while they're in relationships sure, with women and so what happens is that because some of these women fear that these cisgender women they shame them and make them feel bad about their fluidity and make them feel bad about their attractions and so what happens is that these men they see the you know what's happening to us we're being killed dumped off in dumpsters found in hotel rooms laughed at when you turn on your tv we're the butt of the joke or we're these over exaggerated caricatures and they don't want any part of that kind of abuse you know mm -hmm. and so it's about really creating safe spaces for men to most people would say like well why do they need safety or support you know it's us who is because when they can be okay with themselves, then they don't have to project onto us. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Boxer Emil Griffith, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born February 3rd, 1938 in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands and raised in New York, Emil Griffith is known as a world champion boxer. He won his first championship in 1961, later retiring in 1977 after losing three straight bouts. Griffith is best known for his fight with Benny the Kid Perrette in 1962 where he regained the welterweight title. The match was dubbed a grudge match by some because during the weigh-in, Perrette had referred to Griffith as gay in Spanish. The fatal knockout blow to rival Perrette occurred in the 12th round before a national television audience at Madison Square Garden. He went into a coma and died 10 days later. Throughout his career, Griffith was dogged by rumors of homosexuality. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Will Armstrong. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. Now back to our conversation with Ashley Marie Preston. This is Jacob Anderson Mitchell, and I'm here with Diane. Anderson Mitchell, and we're here in conversation with Ashley Marie Preston. A couple of years ago, a book came out called Trans Am, and it was men who are attracted to trans women. And I think it is really wonderful because so often we're either told that men are either exploiting trans women in a gross way and are attracted to them only in a very fetishist way, or that they're only attracted to them because they only see them as just like every other woman. But there are men who are attracted to trans women who are pre-operative or non-operative non or whatever. And there's something about that that you still is wonderful to embrace, right? Like if that is what you are interested in, it's wonderful that you can embrace that and be aware of that and be open about that and why that is and to have that conversation. The key is open communication, being yeah. communicative. Unfortunately, you have a lot of these men who know that we're broken 
in many ways spiritually as we navigate our womanhood and who we are in the world and where we belong. Mm -hmm. And they exploit us for that. So there were moments where I would meet these men and they wouldn't say, I'm attracted to you for this or I just want this to be sex or I just want this to be. They would turn into these spin doctors and they would, in order to get in between your thighs, they had to get in between your thoughts. And Mm -hmm. so it was one of those things where I remember just being broken up so badly because once again, I had fell for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I'm on the other side of it as the partner of a trans person. And I remember, gosh, Jacob transitioned over a decade ago, at least. And um, we've been together 27 years now. So I think we'd been together 15, 16 years and he transitioned. So it's been a long time. But I remember having the year of transition for me, that was very difficult, my own identity in flux, my own ideas and stuff. But then at some point, I started to like recognize an attraction to transgender men. And I specifically said transgender men. And so I had a lot of people who said, well, does that mean you don't see them as real men? And I would say, I think maybe they're better in my mind, you know, like, and some of it was like cultural training of the men that I was finding attractive and stuff. And after having come out of the lesbian community for decades as a bi woman, but a queer woman. So I know a lot of people at that point said, well, then if you're only attracted to trans men and not cisgender men, then that makes you fetishistic. What do you think about that? I actually had to interrogate my own attraction that way because my ex was a trans man. Well, there's two parts to that. First and foremost, I identify as a trans woman because I think it's resistance to cis conformity. I feel that my womanhood should not be contingent upon how well I blend into a, into a, a societal structure, nice. Word, uh, yeah. this socialized structure. So I'm proud of that. The more we say trans, we're giving people permission to be themselves authentically and mm-hmm. unapologetically. Mm-hmm. I don't knock. I know some women who don't want to identify as trans women. They're just a woman. I respect that. Absolutely. That is valid. My truth is that I recognize the spectrum. And I think that my dominance is hot. I (laughs) love when I have femme moments. I get to experience all of that. And so by identifying as trans, it really just states that I'm free to be fluid. With the attraction, I remember when I first, uh, I met this guy who was really attractive and I never knew that I met a trans person before. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure I had, but I didn't know that I had met a trans man before. And when he told me, I was like, "Mm, could I? Like, you know, like I was like, I don't know because I've always been attracted to people's spirit more than anything. Almost like a borderline, I think it's called sapiosexual. Like when Mm -hmm. you're like, it's their mind and their intelligence Mm -hmm. and so I went home and for like several months X-Tube and all these sites I was like okay let me just go watch trans porn to like see if which is terrible that's that's how teenagers learn about sex now so why shouldn't you so I was just like and this is again this is like I was going into 30 years old and so like I was just kind of like well let me see and it actually scared me because I'm actually not turned away by this. In fact, I've never liked penises and I knew that, but it was one of those things where it was kind of like, okay, again, you like the person, you compromise, it's about them. So I found that I actually settled a lot because I just didn't know that that was an option. But what ended up being terrible is when I actually had a trans masculine partner who had dysphoria and did not want to engage that way. And 
I actually found myself in the same position that I used to want to slap the heck out of cis heteronormative men when they would ask me certain questions or want to do things and mm-hmm. they would kind of like it was like they were dating my genitals not me right but I did it I was in the same so it's, it is kind of that fine it's line amazing how you can fall into that yeah. space and recognize that's a good thing you recognize it and you kind of can learn from it but also speak about how yeah. we're only human you yeah. know we're just we're we're figuring this out one yeah. day at a time too. I think fetishism again is when it's disregard for another person's boundaries mm-hmm. that's the way that I've always defined it in my mind fetishism isn't necessarily an attraction like we all have attractions or I think fetishism begins where we disregard the other person's boundaries. We forget that they have feelings. We strip yeah. them of their humanity and we only become concerned with our own selfish indulgence. Exactly. We see them very much more like an object. Exactly. If you're really seeing someone for their whole self and that's attractive to you, exactly. I don't think it's fetishism. No. Where do we land, though, when we're talking about people have the likes and the dislikes and then we have the issue of sexual racism? You know, yeah. all the guys on Grindr say... Oh, no fats, no femmes, no Asians, yeah. no, like, that kind of yeah. vibe, yeah. It's kind of a weird thing where we, yeah. we want to say, yeah, you have your attractions, we don't want to change you, but you're hella racist, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we want to change way. that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. My talking point to that, even, for, like, preferences, like, they're like, no, well, it's just a preference. It's one thing if I say, I like you because, and it's another if I say... Well, I can't like you because. because. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. I can say, I think you're gorgeous in the way the sun hits your blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you. That's a compliment. That's flattering. But if I said, well, black people don't have blonde hair and I like this kind of look, so I just don't date black people in general, mm-hmm. that's a different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes sense to me. Let's skip around a little bit. 57% of trans women of color make below $10,000 a year. Yes. And then if you take, there's a 55% unemployment rate for black trans individuals overall, both women and men. When you add those two things together, it's like we have a high prevalence of poverty among both black and Latina trans people, and especially trans women, because again, women face multiple issues and stuff. What do you think is something that we should be doing on an organizational level in the LGBT community. Like, what should HRC be doing to address that? Or what should one of the major organizations be doing that would address that issue? First and foremost, we need to have people who are from these communities in positions of leadership. I'm someone who, before I was in entertainment and walking red carpets and all that, I was working in the nonprofit sector. And we were only one paycheck away from being in the same position as the demographic yeah. we serve. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you're really like the kind of like leverage uh, there, like the power dynamic is really off. Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to get an honest evaluation of what needs to happen because even at the, I'll just say it, when I was at the Gay and Lesbian Center, even like I had a supervisor that was horrid. And the unfortunate part is that the organization in general does so many amazing things and they change lives and save lives. But when you're in that large of an organization and you have to have one person that's your like chain of communication. And I was a union steward, which yeah. is even crazier. So I could only imagine if somebody wasn't a union steward. And so what happened is that I actually, left nonprofit because of that because I was like you know what this is actually affecting my ability to be able to make change and to be able to change people's lives and help people because I have to do it by a script and so I would say definitely promote 
people of color, trans people of color, black gay men, black lesbians, brown, indigenous people to these positions of leadership. Also, I would say that we have to talk about recidivism because Mm -hmm. there's these purity and respectability politics that live in the LGBTQIA Mm -hmm. community. Like we are in jails. We have a whole, uh, I think it's K-11 in in jail where there's a whole unit dedicated to LGBT, depending on which facility you're in. Like, sure. And so what do we tell black trans women when they're getting out of jail and they're trying to get their lives together but they can't get a job and then they can't get housing and so they're on Santa Monica Boulevard and they're being entrapped or they're actually getting raped by police officers or they're all of these things are happening and then we're putting them right back into the system so I think that organizations like HRC in some of their conversations around legislation that actually benefits not just LGBTQIA people but it should be race specific because then if like I have an idea, for instance, like have some kind of like prison to job uh, pipeline. A pipeline. Mm-hmm. So like I know that I was actually when I was running for office, I was actually working on something like that where people who are getting out of prison can go to like the plumbers union or mm-hmm. who's actually for years. Many people don't know, but they've actually been intentionally hiring people who were formerly incarcerated to give them a second chance, not only just to survive, but to actually have a salary that is actually uh, commensurate to like everything else that's happening around them in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And so I think promotion and uh, leadership jobs and more than anything just listening to them letting us talk because what happens is that when we fill these galas and these events and if you look around, there's a little bit of diversity. Like you will have all of these like white people in media who get clicks or pulls, but there'll be a speck of a person of color. And if they're there, they're kind of just like doing like a shuffle. They don't really have like a a big talking part or anything. And so I think we need to acknowledge race and people don't want to acknowledge race because if I acknowledge that you're at a disproportionate disadvantage because of your race, it means that I have to actually take a step back uh, from my own oppression. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like we caught up in these oppression Olympics where where we're all LGBTQ. Yes, but we're all not women and we're Mm -hmm. all not black, brown or indigenous. And we all don't have uh, criminal records and we all don't make under a certain amount a year. And so really look and we're all not HIV positive and we're all not, you know, so just looking around the room and making sure that we're including everyone in the conversation. Yeah. When I took over the Advocate magazine, one of the things that was really important for me was increasing diversity the number of different voices and the visibility of people of color, like highlighting and making the choice when there's a choice, using a person of color over a person who isn't. And it's been really well received, especially by younger people. But I have gotten my share of hate mail now from, let's say, old white guys who are like, you're ruining the magazine. You are filling the magazine with nothing but transgender people and black people, that kind of thing. And I'm using those letters (laughs) as a badge of honor. But I feel like there's this old guard there. And Mm -hmm. those are probably the same people who grew up in the era of respectability politics where- The Barney Frank days, I'll say it. Like with Enda, with those things where it was kind of just like, yeah, we'll come back around for you, but first. And I'm like, how dare you? Because did we forget that it was Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson who were at the forefront of this movement? Like, we don't want to talk about race and that kind of thing, but- 
it was a black and brown woman, trans mm-hmm. women, who did mm-hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. And Compton's Cafeteria Riot, yes. all of these things. And also, there was so much more fluidity back then. Yes. That's the thing. Now we are very, very focused on pigeonholing things. We're talking about respectability politics. And I think that there was this big move, and certainly... Jacob and I are old enough that we're a part of this and we grew up under this. And so we know it well as, as coming out as uh, basically, you know, we had our young years as, as part of Queer Nation and ACT UP and stuff. But beyond that, we really internalized the message that what we wanted to show America is we're just like you. That's how we get their respect. That's how we get everything is we're just like you. And, it and took, we're model minorities. That's yeah, definitely I mean, a thing, really too. It was I mean, all, we're model minorities. We're just like you, but we'll come spend a lot of money in your vacation destination if you like us. Give us our rights because we just want to have everything you want, the white picket fence, the children, the two dogs, all of that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until I think we were a little bit older and we started to realize, A, that that was detrimental to us to keep up that message when it varied. Mm-hmm. when we weren't just like them. And also it leaves a ton of people out of the message. It leaves yes. a ton of people who are not just like a middle America. As it pertains to respectability politics, I've always said that I refuse to adhere to respectability politics put into place by people who don't respect me. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. So it's one of those things where they're never going to respect you. It doesn't matter if you wear khakis on Sunday. It doesn't matter if you have one kid, two kids. Some people have already made up their mind, certain factions of Mm -hmm. society that they don't agree with who you are. They don't subscribe to your lifestyle. And that's fine. The problem is when our government, who is supposed to be neutral and who is supposed to be preserving this democratic state of living, interferes and begins promulgating a lot of those problematic politics. And going back to wedding, when marriage equality happened, I felt that a lot of gay men, I'm not even going to say lesbians, because lesbians mm-hmm. have never just gotten the credit they deserve. I'm just going to say mm-hmm. it. Like, even in the 80s, when gay men were dropping, like, right, flies we were to taking AIDS, care of them, it was yeah. lesbians. Mm-hmm. And we still, I felt like, have not given them enough respect and acknowledgement and appreciation for that. It was a little uh, bit like after World War II, when the men came back from the military and took their jobs back. Yeah. That's sort of what happened to lesbians. Yeah. It did. When the, when the AIDS crisis started to slow down, it was like the men came came back and took all their jobs back too, yeah. you know? So basically, when we look at the conversation that just happened right now and about the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, the problem with that is that we go hard in the paint for some cake. I mean, we <laughs> will, I mean, I've never seen carbs become so controversial, but when are we going to go that hard over trans people yeah. and the the attacks that we've come under during this administration? So that was why I took the photos of 77 African-American trans women who had been murdered under 35 years old and I put it on a cake because gays love cake. You know, maybe this way it'll be more palatable, no pun intended. It'll be easily digestible for them to see that the same way you give marriage equality all of this attention, then how about we be just as intentional about showing up for everyone else's cause? Because what happens is that, again, going back to race... We really don't recognize the times that had it not been for white gays' sexuality, they would actually have the same exact access to the patriarchy and male white privilege as anyone else. And so we've no longer been the community of all of us or none of us. We've become the community of I got mine, good luck getting yours. 
And so now we're getting to go back to that, right? And to be intentional about including all voices. And I never thought I would ever hear myself say this, but the silver lining of Donald Trump and all of the insanity that has unfolded is that we now have a clear vision of what it is we need to work on. We can't heal what we don't reveal. And so it's interesting when I've heard people say like, oh my God, what is happening? This is not who we are. I'm like, girl, bye. This is exactly who we are. (laughs) We are the country that was founded on genocide and slavery and all of these things that necessarily don't make you bad for being an a white person, when we talk about white supremacy, we're talking about an actual system, not a person, not people. One is a system that white people benefit from from the time they're born, and the other dictates what you do with those privileges and how you use it to contribute to society for the better. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. The last bell for boxer Emil Griffith, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Emil Griffith was a leading boxer during the period from the late 1950s until 1977, when he retired from the sport. During his career, there were persistent rumors that he was gay. In 1992, Griffith was the victim of gay bashing after leaving a gay bar in New York City's Times Square. He was beaten so severely he nearly lost his life. The perpetrator of the crime was never caught. During his lifetime, Griffith described himself at different times as straight, gay, and bisexual. In 2005, he commented to Sports Illustrated, I will dance with anybody. I've chased men and women. I like men and women both. Sadly, Griffith's death occurred on July 23, 2013 in Hempstead, New York at an extended care facility, the result of kidney failure and complications from dementia. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Will Armstrong. Hello, I'm Cece McDonald, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Now, the conclusion of our conversation with Ashley Marie Preston. This is Jacob Anderson Mitchell, and I'm here with Diane Anderson Mitchell, and we're here in conversation with Ashley Marie Preston. People in rural America laugh at the idea of white privilege, and because they're Uh losing their farms, they're losing this, they don't have this, they don't have that, they don't have health insurance, they're struggling, and that's certainly, we grew up in Idaho, we certainly know people like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of what we need to recognize, again, is that we're in this, not just capitalism itself, but we're in a particular moment where we have, again, this 1% or even smaller who is controlling so much of the privilege and the money and everything else in our world that really the rest of us, you know, that's why we really have this ability to bound together is because we are all suffering under this But you know what's so funny, though? That is almost like teetering, like almost like all lives matter. And it's so hilarious because (laughs) like it's one of those things where... We all do, but the difference between it's even white privilege to acknowledge you're not being treated friendly, absolutely, uh, uh, fairly. Because so for the people in Middle America, I'm talking yeah, about, where they're like, wait, like we have this, and we, 
you had a farm. Yeah. We never got exactly. one. That's exactly So what we're I still talking about like meritocracy. Yeah. This idea that all black or brown or indigenous people have to do is pull themselves up by the bootstraps, but we don't talk about state sponsored violence. Or whose land that farm happens to exactly. be on, right? Exactly. The Native Americans never, who were right. you know, removed you got from it. 240 something years of labor for free. Of course you're going to be set. And so when we're talking about white privilege, we're not saying that, oh, you have a million dollars and you get a yeah. car, you get a car, you get a car. <laughs> Farm, you get no, no. What that's over privilege yeah right <laughs> what we're saying is that you have an advantage that you at least know that you deserve better and you have people that will support that notion yeah. black brown and indigenous people have never had that in this country and african-american people even when we talk about racism anti-blackness is a completely different breed of racism in fact the racism yeah. other races experience is a trickle effect of anti-blackness no other ethnic group of people has ever been a slave on U.S. soil. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, a number of Native Americans were Definitely. enslaved. So, yeah, especially in I the mean, early period of time. Yeah, like, I thought, I, but yeah. do you educate on that? Because I, from what I understand, they were just killed. Yeah, yeah. often. Uh, well, they, Which I would have rather <laughs> died, like me yeah. personally. Yeah. I mean, not to get into... No, no, no. But the Spaniards, for example, enslaved yeah, we, a lot of uh, people to, to clear the land. Yeah, to make yeah their, we were enslaved in, in particular and, areas, definitely. Yeah. And But that kind of ties in with this sort of symbiosis between mm-hmm. African-Americans and Native Americans yes. as well, in that like some of the African-Americans escaped to Native tribes. There were some tribes, actually, who did enslave African-Americans, yes. and wow. there, were, yes. there were indeed. And there were also tribes that black slaves ran to that would let them not just live there, but they would in well, become yeah, my part of community. And was actually that was the story. Yeah, that. and I have a little bit of that in my background as well. So it's it's really interesting because we definitely have had this like very symbiotic. And I think mm-hmm. that what you're talking about in terms of anti-blackness is is absolutely true. I don't want to speak to the Latino experience because it's so tied up with immigration and legal structure here right now that they're suffering their own particular issues. Issues yeah. in a particularly difficult way, but in terms of the anti-blackness, I think that just the, this country, the way the country has had the one-drop rule that's been institutionalized, it yeah. has made it so that we see these degrees of blackness and they're interpreted by white people in particular ways. It's not a surprise Beyonce yeah. is Beyonce, right? It's like... um, Well, even when we talk about, like, what it means to be an American and and our rights and privileges. So, like, I I heard people saying, like, well, yeah, the Second Amendment, you know, like, this, this, and this. And I'm like, you do realize that never applied to us, right? Like, in fact, the Second Amendment was there because of us. Because what if the savages, you know, which they were referring to, like, Two-Spirit or, like, Native people Mm -hmm. and, like, different... Like, the whole, like, Native um, Indigenous experience. Like, if they, like, rise up and we have so many slaves now, we have to protect ourselves. Yeah. So it was always meant to protect white men. It was never, yeah. in fact, we get shot And so shot were in the our, police. The original yeah. police patrols were basically were to, to trap. They were slave they, catchers. They were slave catchers, exactly. Yeah. So. And so we can't even hold a cell phone in our grandmother's backyard without getting shot down by or law barbecue. enforcement. So we, yeah, we yeah. most certainly <laughs> cannot... You know. I mean, I think for... So I want to talk to... Really, while we're talking about race, I want to talk a little bit about tying race back to the trans experience in that there's a, a new a book that just came out last year, just won a Lambda Literary Award, um, and it's called Black on Both Sides and by C. Uh, Riley Norton, I think is his name. One of the things he talks about is how, you know, we have this this idea of heteronormativity, but he also talks about transnormativity and particularly the transnormativity 
normative narrative. And he kind of says our modern ideas about what it means to be a trans person sort of exist only by the negation of blackness. And I just wanted to hear like what you thought of that idea. To explain that a little bit more for sure. Yeah. So what he's saying is that basically gender among African Americans is so different from white people that historically, I mean, he really goes back to like the, you know, slave times to talk about gender and how it's sort of constructed really differently in our different societies. And so what he's saying is that modern trans stories that we hear so often are white. They so often are this idea of, again, what we were talking about earlier, which was this idea that if you don't have the surgery, if you don't go through the proper channels, if you don't do the gender identity, and then you do this, and then you transition, that you weren't really trans. And now we're really seeing that broaden with sort of, again, more voices from people of color. Right. So basically what America thinks of is transgender is Caitlyn Jenner, basically, or women like her, which oftentimes can be affluent white women, but white women who are people who had, uh, I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body. I have a woman's brain, all those kinds of things. I've always felt this way. And then I came out and then I had surgery, I transitioned, and now I'm fully woman. And that's sort of a dominant narrative that's very white. well, the other piece to that, too, is that my race supersedes my gender. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that we don't think about. So if I had to, there's one bullet and I have to aim at racism or transphobia, racism is more prevalent and dominant in America than even the transphobia. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to shoot for racism. That's what we're talking about when we talk about intersectional identities. Like yeah. Intersectionality, for listeners who may not necessarily understand that, is recognizing that each layer of my identity carries its own vulnerability. So I'm not only having to battle being a woman, I'm having to battle being a black woman, which is like two strikes. And then I'm a black trans woman, three, and I'm a black trans woman who has to navigate mental health. So that's four. And I'm a black trans woman who's navigating mental health who doesn't fit the conventional idea of beauty with my body. So that's five. Mm -hmm. And so that's intersectionality. That's pretty much um, what that is, is the reason why is even with black women, cis uh, heteronormative black women, femininity in America is even a privilege reserved for white women. Mm, Like we can't be fragile because we can just express an opinion and we're angry. Mm -hmm. But a white woman has that privilege to express disdain and frustration and all of that. And no one is up in arms as much as they would. And I just, oh my God, I just read this book recently that was amazing. And one of the things she was talking about, which I was so not aware of, was that there were early laws during Jim Crow that said black women could not wear like heels, that they were not allowed to wear certain kinds of shoes. And just, again, this idea that femininity was reserved for white women, really. Our beauty. I love my sister, Janet Mock. She talks about pretty privilege. Mm -hmm. Look at the way that we drag Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Kellyanne Conway, but then Melania and Ivanka and all of them get away with all that stuff. You know, it's because, again, like pretty privilege, you know, how we're able to utilize that. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking, I read recently about Frances Thompson, who, have you ever read about Frances Thompson? Yes, I actually wrote about Frances Thompson. Did you? I mean, I'm just like, why are we not talking? We spend a lot of time talking about- trans black slave, for those who don't know. Yeah, she was really the first trans woman to testify in front of a congressional committee after- During the Memphis riots, she was raped and her her friends were raped. And then a decade later, she was tried for, quote, being a man wearing women's clothing and went to prison. And it's like, this is in the 1800s. And you can't crack open an LGBT history book and find this. We need to start reclaiming these people as well. I want to go back a little bit. One of the questions when we were talking about 
again, taking us back to trans women and their issues, especially trans women of color, one of the things that comes up is, you know, I work in, uh, we overlap with the HIV prevention field. We do a lot of work in the HIV, not just prevention, but treatment, stigma, access, and stuff like that. And, you know, 56% of African-American transgender women are already HIV positive. So it's something that is very few people are doing programs specific to trans women, and yet you're the group that has the highest need. And one of the things that comes up for me a lot that I talk with women a lot is there's no pipeline to the top for them in nonprofit work a lot of times because they don't have the education base. So you have a lot of women that I talk with who are working in nonprofit work and they're doing social worker level work, but because they don't have a bachelor's degree, they never rise up in the organization. So they stay in that paycheck to paycheck right above their clients, kind of the position you were talking about being in. I always am wondering, what is the perspective on how can we equalize that? Those folks don't have access to education in the same level because people who get to education can afford to get an education. A lot of times you've got to work it in with other jobs and you have to support yourself. So tell Um, me. I am actually going to be honest. There's a lot of nepotism and racism in some of these structures because I actually knew many co-workers who went to school and they had those degrees. Oh, uh, really? And mm-hmm. in fact, they were working through, they were doing what it was, was that because other people looked better when it came time to meet with donors or meeting with, mm. they were put to the back of the so line. So you're saying even with an education, yes. women of color are feeling yes. disadvantaged in nonprofit work because yes. that's part of keeping us at that level. Tell us just a little bit more about Shook and what you have planned for the next season. Yeah, so season two, I have a singer, artist, I like to call her, uh, Kaylani, who's actually going to be performing at Pride this nice. weekend. Who's and awesome. Yes. And I have Wanda Sykes coming on the show. Great. And Justin Tranter, who just won Songwriter of the Year, second uh, year in a row. And just a lot of amazing people. So stay That's tuned great. for that. That's so exciting. Awesome. And you have a TED Talk coming out in September. Tell us more. It's going to be in Pasadena. And I am going to be talking about surprise intersectionality. Like, what does that mean? How do we become better allies? So tickets will go on sale in July. And that's TEDx Pasadena. And so, awesome. Yeah. And if you want to follow more of what I'm talking about or what I'm doing, uh, you can find me on Facebook at Ashley spelled with two E's, no Y, Marie Preston. I'm on Instagram at Ashley Marie Preston. And I'm on Twitter at Ashley M. Preston. So we have to wrap it up. It's been so wonderful being here. We want to thank our executive producer, Steve Pride. And this has been Jacob Anderson Mitchell. Diane Anderson Mitchell. And Ashley Marie Preston. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank you. Bye. Since they spoke, Ashley has ceased her podcast, although past episodes are still available online. And she launched youareessential.org, which is a funding organization and mutual aid network combating food insecurity, housing instability, and barriers to access encountered by the elderly, disabled, immunocompromised, and the deeply marginalized. A YouTube link to the TED Talk she referenced in the interview is available on the IMRU Radio Facebook page. Well, there's still time for a last word. And tonight, that's Steve Pride's visit with an old friend to talk about her most memorable film role. One that was absolutely top drawer. But darling, I'm your aunt.
Anti-Mame! Anti-Mame began as a 1955 novel by Patrick Dennis, which was adapted into a 1957 Broadway play. The 1958 film version gave Rosalind Russell a chance to recreate her stage role as Mame, the flamboyant aunt of young, impressionable Patrick Dennis. Now, now, where were we? Narcissistic, lysistrata, neurotic, heterosexual... Oh, my, 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 what an eager little mind. You won't need some of these words for months and months. Auntie Mame fulfills every young gay boy's dream to be spirited away from the dreariness of everyday life and whisked off to the never-never land of fabulous parties in Bohemia. Live! That's the message! Live! Yes! Life is a banquet, and most poor suckers are starving to death! When I was a queer little boy watching Auntie Mame the first time, I fell in love with the little blonde actor playing Patrick. And later in the film, when he morphed into the older Patrick, I was still totally smitten. But then he went and got engaged to the snobby Gloria Upson. We've decided on a September wedding at our place in Montebank. Uh, tell me, just where is Montebank? It's right above Darien. Oh, you love it. It's awfully pretty and it's terribly handy to the city. Of course, it's completely restricted. I'll get a blood test. According to the biography Uncle Mame, The Life of Patrick Dennis by Eric Myers, while the real-life Patrick did get married and have kids, he eventually left them when he fell in love with another man. My friend Joanna Barnes played Patrick's fiance, Gloria Upson, and recalls reading the novel Auntie Mame long before being cast in the film. I remember reading the book with my, well, it was in the house. My mother read it, and she said, you've got to read this book. It's the funniest thing in the world. And I read it, and my father read it. We all thought it was absolutely hilarious. And I think you just sort of assumed that he was gay. And um, I just think that it was accepted tacitly. I mean, you didn't even have to talk about it. Hey, maybe that's the real reason Patrick dumped Gloria. Yeah. (laughs) I never thought of that. Well, well, well. Now, what we need is some music, some Christmas carols. A quick nugget of film trivia. In Disney's original 1961 version of The Parent Trap, starring Haley Mills, Barnes played the gold-digging other woman. And in the 1998 remake starring Lindsay Lohan, she played the gold digger's mother. Joanna Barnes turned 87 on November 15th. She lives in Palm Springs, which is very gay and in no way restricted. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by the station. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We kick off the inevitable post-Thanksgiving march toward other winter holidays with a pirated with permission recording that Steve Pride made of openly gay saxophonist Dave Cause at a backyard Christmas party at a Bel Air mansion some years ago. Enjoy and good night.
all for coming tonight. I appreciate it. We all appreciate it. And how about it for Brian Simpson on piano? Thank you.